talking about precipitation. I'm talking Father God, He gave Jesus the nations. And He's ruling now, even over pagans. One day He's coming back, you just gotta have patience. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. King Jesus. All hell. King Jesus. Start us off with a non joke. Say like, welcome to Dat Post Mill, where I don't really have a joke, but Dustin's not here, so Colin made me start or something like that. Do your best Dustin impression. That'd be awesome. Welcome back to Dat Post Mill Podcast. We're here with Colin Pearson. Hey, guys. John Howell. Hello. And today we're missing our good buddy and Minnesotan, Dustin Raynham, but he'll be back soon. Oh, I'm so sad. I'm so full of tears tonight. <laughs> That was the worst Minnesotan accent ever. What don't you know? Cornflakes and bananas. But also with us this evening, we have from Apologia Church, Apologia Radio, and Apologia Worldwide Dominion Taking, we have Jeff Durbin. What's up, guys? Dat Post Mill. Dat Post Mill. (laughs) Hashtag it. (laughs) Dustin's missing, huh? So is is Sini. Shaney. Shaney. I, I know. <laughs> I know. Dude. I know. He's not. He's not on, and I know it really bothers him. So uh, he's. This, Sini's a great dude. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin's not here. Man down. There's a man down. That's not that post mill. <laughs> I'm just so glad that we can finally have Jeff the Mouse Durbin on oh, our podcast. Dude, that's so messed up. That's not. That's not that post. <laughs> or wait. Or no, wait, I forgot. It's it's Jeff the Ninja? Yes. Um, no question mark. <laughs> Thank you. I, de- I definitely miss the mouse reference. Yeah? Never happened. I still have all like 20 memes that I made. <laughs> <laughs> you got like a, a storehouse of, of maymays you made that are just ridiculous. Yeah, it's just, it's just I never deleted them from my phone, so. <laughs> you just stay up late at night just staring at them and scrolling through them. No, I just scrolled through them by accident the other day and was like, "Oh, look, I never deleted those." Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. What no, what I think we what I think we really need is a is an avatar for Mortimer because, you know, it's kind of like I imagine kind of church curmudgeon type of type of face for yeah. that. And I think we need to get we need to get a, a cartoon version of that. Mortimer's the guy at the door that gives you the bulletins. Yes. Welcome yeah. <laughs> welcome to church. God bless you. God bless. <laughs> Hey, that that those are greeters, and they're very important. This is the day. This is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what's up, guys? What do you guys do on Dat Post Mill? Taking Dominion. You take Dominion. Just taking Dominion. Taking Dominion of uh, podcasting. Sweet, sweet. Yeah, we were up to at least forty ninth on the iTunes charts nice. in Christianity. Nice. So that's probably like eight thousand three hundred and fifth or something. <laughs> but we're. <laughs> but we were above Mark Driscoll and I think Joyce Meyer for nice. at least yeah, or at least like 15 minutes. If so. that's not that post mail, I don't know what it is. So thanks for having me on, guys. Thanks for joining us. Apologia Radio happens to be the po- the podcast that basically we just agree with on practically everything. So it's pretty nice. awesome to have Good. you join us. Well, I'm uh I'm talking to you right now from the writers room of our new studio. We're just trying to stay consistent as dying embers in this brand new studio um, <laughs> in a huge warehouse uh, that God has given to us. And uh, so we got our own little TV studio right now. Marcus is choking right now. Uh, we have a TV studio right now. We even have our own green screen. 
and uh, and we're in the writer's room right now, and uh, it's just awesome. God's really blessed us. Uh, praise God, brother. Praise God. Yeah. So we're excited. It's a, it's definitely a lot of hard work, man. I mean, we got in, we were like gung ho. Like Marcus and I were up till four thirty in the morning one morning from like nine a.m. the morning before, and uh, walking out here like zombies. Turned around the next day doing exactly the same thing. We were hitting it pretty hard. Got really tiring and exhausting, and uh, we're we're done with the front area, which is where I'm talking to you from now, the writer's room, the creative room. One whole wall is uh, chalkboard paint for putting up ideas, and uh, there's these little sound cubes all over the walls to absorb, uh, you know, the echo and well, my voice and everything else. And then um, I mean, it's pretty sweet. You walk into the big open warehouse, and that's where there's going to be, like, movable sound, sound stages and things like that. And uh, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's just really cool. Wow. Sweet. Man. So what, what sort of cool things can we look forward to coming from Apologia Studios um, in addition to what you already have? Yeah. Well, we're going to do um, – every episode is going to be recorded. Marcus Pittman is doing all of the audio, all of the direction. all Everything you see is going to be his stuff. So every episode is going to be – really creative and just you're going to be able to watch it and uh, we're going to have additional content available to people um, obviously the same stuff we've always done uh, you know just teaching bringing the gospel into every area of the culture the hard places uh, teaching people how to defend their faith know what they believe why they believe it heralding the gospel um, bringing guys in uh, to to do the interviews here we're going to have we're going to be putting out uh, all kinds of video content so basically um, I mean I mean, it's gonna, everything multiplied by 10. I mean, we're just going to go hit the streets and record content. We're going to have um, television show stuff we're doing. We're going to do um, uh, some interesting stuff with our green screen that uh, we haven't really talked about yet. Um, and uh, just new shows, new content. And we want to just try to bring the gospel into every area we can and bring media under the feet of Jesus. So I have a question. Are you not, are you no longer doing the radio thing? Like you've, you've, you've gone beyond the traditional old medium and, and just gone to new media. Jump, well, jumped the, over. the, the radio station we were, we were broadcasting from was playing all over Arizona. But, um, and so we've been doing that for a couple of years now and we have, I mean, uh, we, I don't even know, we have, I don't know, what is it? Um, Somewhere over a million downloads, uh, direct downloads from um, our website and the app and everything else. And um, we, all of the contact we were getting is from around the world on a regular basis from the online stuff. And so there's no way for us to really gauge what was going on as it aired all over Arizona. And so we just figured, you know, we, we want to have more reach. And so we wanted to take the money that we had invested as a church in um, broadcasting all over Arizona in that studio and just invest it in a, in a better way that was more effective and uh, would expand our reach. And so that's basically what we've done. Um, I, I want to share with you guys the story because I think it's, I, I hope it encourages just people about what God is doing. Um, so we had a burden to expand our ability to, to, to reach people with the gospel um, through the media um, outreach we were doing. And um, we get stuff all over from all over the world every single day. People coming out of the cults, people coming out of atheism, you know, people coming to Christ from all walks of life, people starting ministry to abortion clinics. Um, and so we're just constantly getting this stuff. Um, and uh, we just wanted to expand that reach through media. And um, I had a passion for it, but I don't have the gifts for it in the sense of like filming stuff and putting together great content, editing, and um, and so when Marcus was here for the God, Governments, and Culture Conference, uh, he and I were talking, and his burden is the same as mine. 
in this area. And so it just was like, it just fit together. And so we were talking about it like, this is kind of weird. It's like, we want the same things. And, um, and so I, I wanted to do it. Marcus wanted to do it. And so we just kind of put it before God and like, hey, this would be a really great thing. But we didn't ask anybody for anything. And so we didn't really say, hey, if anybody would, would want to participate in this, you know, we'd need some help to do this sort of thing. We just put like the word out, hey, like there's some big things in store right now. We were praying about it. it could be great stuff. Please pray for us. Well, so we needed the money and we needed a place and we didn't have either. And as a result of not even asking for any financial help, somebody contacted us and said, what is it you guys are doing? And so we said, well, we want to do this. And they said, okay, here's $30,000. And so they gave us $30,000 to, to start the project. And, um, and then we needed a place. And so we were looking like high and low for the perfect spot. So I went out with real estate guys and was looking at spaces. And it was just difficult to find a spot that would match what we needed. And so we had a couple places in mind. One day after the radio program, Luke and I just went on Google and we were eating lunch together and we just said, hey, this, let's go take a look at this place. So we drove all the way to Tempe um, to take a look at this place. And while we were in this little industrial complex, we ended up calling a different place, um, kind of by accident from our perspective. And we got on the phone with this guy and he goes, no, I don't have something there that fits what you're talking about. He goes, but I do have it over here. And we said, hey, can we take a look at it? He's like, well, no, no, I don't think so. But he's like, oh, I might have someone there. Yeah, go ahead and take a look at it. So we drove over here. We found this place. It fit exactly what we were dreaming of. And uh, it turns out the owner of the property and the management company are both solid reform dudes. And uh, the, one, the owner of it owns multiple complexes across Arizona and I think beyond. And uh, so I end up on the phone with this guy. And uh, he's really kind of leery at first, you know, like doesn't want to really, you know, give too much of himself away yet and, and uh, just kind of, you know, keep me at arm's distance. But I said, hey, would you just do me a favor? Would you go online? And while he's on the phone with me, he goes online. And I say, hey, just watch this sermon and this sermon. You get a good feel for what we're all about as a church. And so he says, OK, I'll do that and, you know, call you back. So I get a message from him the next morning and he said that he had watched the sermons at his office. He went home that night and watched him again with his wife. And then he was gorging himself in his words like all morning the next day with stuff that was on our YouTube channel. And um, he ended up meeting with us and we talked about the gospel for like 45 minutes. And then he says, okay, what do you guys need? And it was amazing because basically we were telling him, we, we have to pay half of what you're asking for your space. And we would need a bunch of free rent and we need this and we need that. And it was just stupid stuff, like un unfair almost, you know, like th this is just, it's above and beyond. And his response was absolutely yes and yes. And he gave us a bunch of free rent and he, he's only charging us half. And he ended up saying, and if you guys end up, you know, as you're building this struggling and you need more help, he says, I'll just give it to you for free. And wow. uh, yeah, so basically God's given us the space. He's given us the finances to do it. And uh, he's just he's just good to us, man. And um, he's just displaying constantly the fruit of this ministry um, through the constant, constant contact we have from people all over the world. People are asking right now in India uh, to play our sermons on their networks, television networks in India. We have people contacting us to put us on the radio stations across the country. Um, our our YouTube channel is blowing up, and the sermons are going out like just all over the world. And our radio show itself is just expanding constantly just because of the grace of God. It's just happening. And um, I'm getting contact all the time 
from people who are saying, hey, my whole view of the future has changed. I've taken my kids out of public school. Uh, we're homeschooling now as a result of listening to your show. I, you know, I believe Christ's victory now. I'm no longer afraid of the future. And I'm um, investing now in, in the world with the gospel and um, people who are coming to a, a better, more biblical view of the law of God and culture and society. And, uh, and most of all, people coming to Christ uh, as a result of the radio program that God's given to us. Wow, that's some dying embers, bro. <laughs> yeah. So, sounds like we'll be shutting everything down soon. We're going away. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I mean, over the last couple of weeks, and, and, and it, I, lo- I love the brothers who, you know, who aren't you know, on board with us. I love them, and I care for them, and I do pray for their ministry. Um, you know, but it was funny as I was hearing some of the recent banter about you know, guys who believe in the victory of Jesus within history and, and, and love uh, the law of God and see its continuing relevance saying things like, oh, it's a di- those are dying embers. You know, here I am painting walls in a new studio given to us, you know, with uh, tens of thousands of dollars just handed to us to do this project while I'm getting inundated with emails of people coming to Christ and, you know, and people on the other side are saying, well, those are dying embers. And, you know, I mean, our average shows are, our shows are averaging about 10,000 downloads a piece. And as far as I understand, some people are, you know, getting around 30 listeners. Jeff, you know what you should do is you should call the, that gray on your studio walls. You should call that dying ember gray. <laughs> <laughs> it's just ashes. Just ashes. <laughs> it's just the ashes. Uh, that's crazy. No, and, and it's all. It's so listen. Funny. Here's the amazing thing I could say is the the truth about what God has done throughout all the years of Apologia Church. We should not exist today. Uh, there's there's no um, humanly speaking rational reason why we should exist as a church. We started as a church um, out of an addiction center, uh, addiction recovery center, leading people to Christ out of addictions. We didn't have any money. Um, The elders of the church I was at laid hands on me, and when Luke and I left to go plant the church, um, we didn't even know if we were going to make it. We didn't know how how we were going to eat. We didn't know how we were going to feed our families. It did not make sense. It literally was just taking a plunge off of a cliff, and um, and God took care of us from the very first night. Uh, with people in that room, there's only maybe five people besides our family in that room, and they were in halfway houses. There was no ability to take care of ourselves. We just needed to take care of these people. And God would just send people to us who would just literally say, hey, God laid it on my heart to give you $15,000. And they didn't even know us. And they would say, hey, I heard about your ministry, and we want to give you this money. And so that's how God has done this since the very beginning. We don't have the means to do what we envision. Um, we don't have, um, I'm, not, I'm not worthy of this in myself. And everything that God has done, he has just done. We're just sitting back and spectating. So Apologia Radio itself is blown up worldwide. And uh, it's having a significant impact for the, for the gospel around the world. And, and it's just something that we just said, we need to do this for God. We don't have the money for it. We're going to trust you with it. And he did it. And then he's just blessing it. Um, and it's just, I really, I am a spectator in all this. Wow. That's really cool, man. Amen. Cool. Stay tuned. And we'll be back in just a minute on Dad Post Mail. Don't you see that Jesus purchased me? See the blood on that mercy seat? As a man, he was born in Bethlehem, but he's from eternity. Now that's Bible. Micah 5 2. You believe he's God? Yes, I do. The only hero to die for the villains that's poetic, like Haku. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dat Post Mail Podcast. We're here with Jeff Durbin from Apologia Radio, Apologia Studios, Apologia Church. And 
Also with me, I'm Adam, by the way. I'm, he- I'm here with John Howell and Colin Cornrow Pearson, as he's known in this park. <laughs> Jeff the Mouse, what? I don't know. Jeff. I've seen his his ninja videos. The Mouse. Yeah. And th- th- that doesn't look like no mouse. Unless you're talking about Master Splinter or something. Here's the thing, though. Like, real ninjas, you don't know that they're ninjas. I'm just saying. Not true. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> See, Japan Japan actually has the worst ninjas because they're the only country you know has ninjas. All the other countries, ninjas are so secret you don't even know about it. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous thing ever. <laughs> Dude, Jeff Jeff vehemently disagrees with you, bro. I do. Disagrees. I do. The men the men who taught me ninjutsu, I'm not a, I'm not I don't have like a master degree in ninjutsu, but the guys who taught me ninjutsu when they did, they would, you know, I have to say hello, I'm a ninja. <laughs> This is how they introduce themselves. Can I just yeah, can I sure. just say this? And I don't, I'm not meaning to get into discussion, but Jeff, brother, first of all, like I listened to Apology Radio, and that's how I first got acquainted. I was very blessed. And then I got to tell you, man, I was even more blessed when I realized and I saw the footage and I saw that you were part of the Mortal Kombat tour, like the yes. live show. Like that was the live show. Yeah, <laughs> that's when I knew this dude. I need to listen to this dude. I need to just like just eat everything <laughs> I can because not only will I learn the Bible, but I'll learn how to finish him. You know what I mean? Like I'll learn how to like really <laughs> get go. in there and good. do it. Very good. <laughs> so. That was good. That was very good. Yeah, I was uh, I was competing like every weekend across the country, and uh, I would get picked up for things, and uh, I was in. I think it was Boston uh, in 1996. Gosh, that seems like a long time ago. Uh, Boston, 1996. I finished my form and I'm, you know, jumping and flipping and doing my thing. And I walked out of the the ring and this guy walks up to me and he says, hey, uh, what size pants do you wear? And I was like, <laughs> I'm still like soaked in sweat and like panting. I'm like, what? What? He's like, what's your inseam size? What's, what's your inseam size, your waist? And I was like... I'm sorry, who are you? He was like, he said, I'm with David Fishoff Productions. We uh, have Manizatours for the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, blah, blah, blah. He goes, we're doing Mortal Kombat, the live tour, the world tour, and we want you to play Johnny Cage. Um, and uh, now, mind you, th- I'm, I'm back from the day when we used to go to the arcades to play Mortal Kombat, like put your quarter on the screen, like I'm up next, bro. <laughs> like, yeah. that, so I, and all my friends, I was on the team with the guys who were in the original Mortal Kombat 1 and 2, the arcade game, they were, those are my buddies. And so I was like a fiend for Mortal Kombat. So when he told me, we want you to play Johnny Cage, I was like flipping out. And so I ended up uh, getting picked up with Mortal Kombat. I played Nightwolf, uh, Johnny Cage, and Baraka on the world tour. And it was like a multi-million dollar stage production, like lasers, stage, different stuff. It was crazy. Like there's trampolines built into the floor. And it was like a like an hour and a half or two hour long show. We did about two or three a day and uh, played at venues. It, it went all across the country and around the world. I did the overseas leg of the tour, and um, yeah, it was awesome. It was a cool experience. Whenever I think about Mortal Kombat, I think about Rebellion because I wasn't allowed to play Mortal Kombat as a kid because I was probably like 11 when it came out, and so I had to go over to my friend's house in order to play the game like on the <laughs> on the Sega Genesis. So like you're you're dredging up old childhood sins for me <laughs> confessions of that post mail <laughs> that's funny it's funny though because like my my um my my kids my first my oldest kids 
Like they know that I've done Ninja Turtles and Mortal Kombat and I was a world champion and like they, they could care less. They never have cared. They've never even been like, oh, that's neat. <laughs> they just don't care. And uh, but my 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 fourth child, my son, uh, Stellar, um, he like is the only child I have that even cares at all. He's like he brags about the fact that, you know, I'm a Ninja Turtle. Like if he sees something Ninja Turtle, he's like, hey, Dad. like he sees a kid walk by with a Ninja Turtle shirt on. He's like, he doesn't know he's standing next to one. Like, you know, he's. <laughs> he thinks it's a big deal. My other kids could care less. So wait, which Ninja Turtle movie were you in? I was in the, I did stuff for the franchise for the TV stuff they did. Um, oh, and okay. I played Michelangelo, Donatello. I did the, I choreographed the fight scenes uh, with a buddy of mine. And I played, I did their, their fight scenes for those two. And I also did some work for the Foot Soldiers and Casey Jones. Oh, because if because we were going to talk about Secret of the Ooze, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two, yeah, I could quote the whole. Well, I was going to just quote the whole movie for you right now, if you, if you prefer, you know, I could I could just well, do that, you know. So Ernie Reyes Jr. plays the 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 kid in that in that film, and when Kino, I grew up, yeah, yeah he, when I grew up, he was like my hero because like he's legit, like like really legit. His dad, Ernie Reyes Sr., owns a chain of schools, West Coast Taekwondo. And it's legit. And uh, so Ernie Reyes is really good. He was a competitor. He was awesome. And uh, so I've, I've known about him, and he was one of my heroes growing up. And um, there's a video online you can see if you're big in, into that um, where I did a show for MTV called The Final Foo, and Ernie Reyes Jr. was the host and the referee for that fight series I did on, on MTV. Wow. Well, you know, he was in uh, – wasn't he in Three Ninjas Kickback too? I think, yes. Something like that. I think he yeah. was, yeah. Nice. Yeah, that's another good he one. He was too. also yeah. in Red Sonia with uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. But you know what, Jeff? The thing you're talking about, your kids not really caring whether or not you were, you're doing all this stuff. But the nice thing about having kids is I'm just as good as a ninja or a wrestler as you are when it comes to kids. Because that, all they care about is you wrestling with them on the floor. That's right. And and what you're doing you know, outside of that really doesn't matter at all. That's so true. as long as you're being a good dad, you know, <laughs> yep. that, they appreciate that. anyways. Yep. Exactly. So, so we're going to kind of move into a little bit of, of the theology and the, the biblical aspect of the podcast, you know, not just goof around. So we, we're talking about, I know, Jeff, you talk on Apology Radio a lot about biblical worldview and filtering things through a biblical perspective and not just taking facts as pure, hard, blunt facts and, and ideas, but really putting them through the lens of what the Bible says, because everyone really does that to some extent, whether they're an atheist or a Muslim or a Christian. Um, sometimes people are inconsistent, but still they have a world th- worldview through which they filter everything. That's right. So how, how would you define what a biblical worldview really is? Well, when you talk about worldview, everyone has, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, a worldview, a lens through which they look at the world. And from, in philosophical terms, everybody has uh, a basic epistemology, how they know what they know, um, how they know if something's true or false or what have you, how they go about finding out. And everybody has a view of ethics, how you should live your life. Um, now, in our culture today, you may have just ab- adopted it from... Um, Television, from Facebook, from a teacher, from buddies and social media, uh, from Lady Gaga, from her songs. I mean, music is preaching. And so you think about some of the songs that have come out in the last couple of years um, promoting, say, homosexuality um, as, as a good thing. And, um, and that is preaching an ethic. And so you may adopt that and you believe this is how you should live your life. And 
everybody has so everybody has that epistemology they have a view of ethics they a way that you should live your life everyone has a basic metaphysic a view of the nature of what what this is what reality is uh, where we come from some people might actually have a defined view of origins and say i believe we came from uh from the slime and we've evolved from worms to fish to human beings and uh or you have a biblical worldview and that is you look at the world through the theonoustos, the breathed out revelation of God, the God breathed um, the word of God, the revelation of God, the Bible. And you stand on that. So a biblical worldview is looking at the world and deriving how you know what you know from Scripture, deriving your ethic from Scripture, um, your view of origins from Scripture. And so everybody has a worldview. You may not have, have taken the steps to actually change your mind in something, but you have a view of, of life and reality. And so that's, that's a worldview. A biblical worldview is just what it sounds like, standing on the Word of God, standing on the rock, and, um, and viewing the world through the lens of, of God's Word. And so I think it's important as Christians in our culture that we figure this out. We know what we believe and why we believe it. We are in, uh, I think, a difficult place as a church in the West today because over the centuries, Christians have always passed the faith down to their children and to, to other disciples systematically. This is the God we believe in. Here's how we know what we know. Here's what God says about himself. Here is what scripture is. Um, this is what God's decrees in history are. And so the faith has always been passed down systematically. And we're in a different place now where we, ha we have tons and tons and tons of youth groups and churches that offer youth groups, but we have youth groups that don't necessarily systematically train our youth. And so we have um, a problem in the West today where we have a new generation of quote-unquote believers coming up who don't know what they believe. They don't know why they believe it. They can't answer the simplest questions about, say, even the Trinity. And I don't mean that in the sense that it's a simple thing, but it's it's they can't even define uh, what the triune God of Scripture is like, um, who is God, uh, what is salvation. And a lot of times when this younger generation of professing believers goes away to college, they get eaten up by a professor in college uh, with some of the, I think, um, lowest forms of argument imaginable, and they can't even answer those. And so we have uh, a difficult time today in the West where many professing young people are abandoning their faith in Christ their professed faith in Christ, uh, either temporarily through college or permanently. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, the, the lack of systematic training in the biblical worldview. Now, obviously, there's a foundation to people abandoning their faith in Christ, their professed faith in Christ, and that is they didn't know him in the first place, and there's not genuine faith, not a clear understanding of the gospel message and all the rest. But I think that our greatest struggle today is that as Christians, we don't know what we believe, why we believe it. We can't express this faith. You couple that together with what your podcast is emphasizing, the victory of Christ in history. You couple that problem together with a pessimistic view of the future that is adopted by the majority of professing Christians in the West, and you have what we have today, a culture that is sinking um, into darkness, drinking it in, and um, we're struggling. Not because Jesus isn't powerful, not because the gospel isn't the power of God for salvation, but there's all these other factors uh, that are in play. And so that's, uh, I think, one of the things we have to address, and it comes down to the biblical worldview. Well, who is God? How do I come to know God? What is this thing in front of me, the scriptures? How do I know what's true? And those kinds of questions. 
Absolutely, Jeff. That's good stuff. I agree with you. And I and and it is true that one thing we really try to emphasize here on that post mill is that the gospel is is bigger than just a few propositions to defend about man's plight and his afterlife. Um, we need forgiveness. That's true. And we need to be with, with God. That's true. But the gospel is goes way beyond that. You know, Paul himself says that we are saved and called for good works and that we are called to have the mind of Christ, that we are called to learn the law of God that is in our hearts, that has been written on our hearts, internalized, that we would love him. That's how we that's how we love him is by obeying that. And um, there's just so many things involved in the gospel that I think that uh, American evangelicalism has just not been concerned about. And we talked about this already, and it's obviously a source spot for me, but there is one of the most popular pastors in America on TV saying that the pulpit is no place for engaging in society and it's no place for all those things. It's really only about telling the individual that they're a sinner and that they can go to heaven through Christ. Now, there's no better news to me than that being a sinner, I can go to heaven. There's no, there really is no better. I got to be honest with you. And that's part of my sin is that I really am very, very grateful that me, that I am taken care of by the cross. But God's plan, the gospel of God, according to Romans, is concerning the son and it's concerning his glory and his plan and what, what he would have for us. And so what you're saying about a biblical worldview, I think that's so, I think that's really a huge missing piece. And when I say missing piece, I mean, it's, it's kind of like we have a steering wheel. And we're wondering what the steering wheel is all about. But man, without a biblical worldview, we don't have the ship. We don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. We don't even know what the uh, steering wheel is for. So I want to ask you, based on like what you just talked about, the biblical worldview specific, specifically, when we talk about post-millennialism, because this is that post-mill, and when we talk about theonomy, we talk about God's law and God's standard. How does that come into play into helping us develop a biblical worldview? Like what part does that play in a worldview? I think the importance of the post-millennial frame of reference, view of the future, and theonomic view, I don't think it can be understated when it comes to the issue of the biblical worldview. We're dealing today as Christians with a very difficult situation, particularly in the West, with issues of injustice, with issues of sin, with lawlessness, those sorts of things. And because we don't have a proper perspective of the victory of Christ in history, his role, him being seated now with all authority in heaven and on earth, because we don't pray the Lord's Prayer and mean it, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it impacts us a great deal. Because we think we lose in history, um, we disengage from history. We abandon the world um, to the darkness, ultimately because in many respects, because of our eschatology, we believe that the worse things get, the better it is for us personally, because it means that any moment Jesus can come and snatch us away. And I'm saying that with sympathies to those who hold to that position, because I used to hold to it as well. I was raised up um, as, a, as, a, as a new Christian um, in the dispensational premillennial uh, view of history. I was a fiend about it. I loved it. I taught it to others. I went to Bible college and aced my tests on um, it, throughout that, those courses. Um, I loved it. Uh, but it did impact me. I did look at the world around me and the decay, and I did 
see it as, uh, you know, it, that this is Christ approaching. At any moment, we're out of here. And so it, it impacts us. And at the same time, when you look at the world around us as a Christian, you don't approach it um, with a truly biblical worldview, standing on the rock of God's Word, you can't answer the tough questions of society today. I mean, many times as Christians, because we don't approach the world um, standing on the law of God in many respects, we're just white noise like the rest of the world. We as Christians oftentimes don't have um, a consistent response to the world today as an antithesis to what the world believes or is, is heralding or teaching. We don't have the antithesis. We're not standing on the Word of God. So we don't approach the world with a definitive answer from Scripture. This is God's standard because we have a warped and very strange view of the law of God in our culture. I mean, so ultimately, if you think about the story of the Scriptures from the Old and New Testaments, the story is salvation, it's forgiveness to the ends of the earth. The story is Jesus seated on his throne putting his enemies under his feet. That's the story. That's where we're at now, 1 Corinthians 15. Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New. That was the frame of reference the apostles had. They knew that the Messiah was bringing a kingdom that brought salvation to the ends of the earth. There was forgiveness. There was redemption. But there was also something that went along with that, and that's the authority of this Messiah that would bring all the nations. And that authority of the Messiah was all-encompassing. It wasn't just in little silos. It wasn't myopic. It wasn't just over the church. It was an authority that extended to every area. This is what the Jews anticipated. And that's what Jesus was teaching. He says, all authority, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, in heaven and on earth, and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, because all authority is his, and make disciples of the nations. I mean, that was the goal of Jesus. That's the story riding through. And so, I mean, the constant theme of the scriptures is the victory of this Messiah over the nations. Genesis 49.10, Moses writes, to, writes and tells us that this one who's coming, Shiloh, to him will be the obedience of the nations. They, that's the story they understood, this Shiloh, the obedience of the nations, that this descendant of Abraham, Abraham's seed, is going to bless all the world, and Abraham's going to have descendants as numerous as the stars. That doesn't sound like pessimism to me. That sounds like pretty optimistic eschatology right there, and that begins there in Genesis. You, you look further, and you begin to see that David's going to have a descendant that will be on the throne, and all the nations are going to belong to this Messiah, and you just see this pattern in the Old Testament of this picking up of, of, of this, this theme of the climax of history that God rules over the nations, he wins the nations, and Psalm chapter 2, read by many, because maybe you don't finish reading the Psalms, you start, you commit to it, but you at least see it. It's there, Psalm 2, where the promise is made, ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. That's what the Father promised the Son. And then the Father actually warns the kings, those who are in authority in all the earth, to obey the Son or they're, or they're going to perish. You have this constant theme of victory. And, and, and going alongside with that theme of victory in the Old and New Testament is the promise of regeneration. The gospel goes out, the good news of Christ and who he is and what he's accomplished, the call to repent and believe. And when that gospel goes out, I mean, we're supposed to believe this as Reformed folks, that the gospel re brings regeneration. The Holy Spirit of God regenerates us. He gives us new hearts. He opens our eyes. He actually fundamentally changes our status before God. We're declared righteous through faith, but also 
we're regenerated and now not in the flesh but in the spirit. And so the story of the scriptures of, of the of the eschaton is that the Messiah comes, has all authority, brings the nations to salvation, and the spirit of God actually changes people and in changing people actually causes them to love the law of God, which they once or before the work of the Messiah could not do as we can do now. So, so whereas in the Old Testament, the people of God are in covenant with God, but they're not where we're at today. They're still sacrificing bulls and goats. They're still, they still have these rudimentary, elementary things like a, a physical temple that can be destroyed, a priest who's a sinner who also dies. I mean, they're just waiting for it. And, and, and they also cannot do fundamentally what the law of God requires, which is to love God and love neighbor. The promise in the book of Romans is that now, because Christ has come, because this is actually all being fulfilled now, now we can, in the Spirit, do what was the righteous requirement of the law to begin with, which is to love God, love neighbor. Now, if you, if you stretch that out, if you show that Christ is king now, has all authority, is ruling and reigning and putting his enemies under his feet, and that now, as he brings that redemption, he regenerates people and causes them to walk in God's statutes, Ezekiel 36. You begin to see now how the law of God becomes a blessing to society. It is not something forced on society. It is not something that is abusive. It's not tyrannical. It's, it's now people are saved by the grace of God and now able to do the righteous requirement of the law. And if someone says, well, what is that? I'd say, well, it's love God, love neighbor. And they say, oh, well, that's, that's a beautiful thing. That's a wonderful way to look at the world. Well, that's how the Old Testament always said it. But they couldn't do it because they were rebels. They weren't regenerated in the sense that we are today in the New Testament. And now we can. Now the story is people love God and his law. And now that becomes a blessing to the world. Salvation and the law of God itself becomes something that people look to and say, that's good, that's just, that's righteous, and they're actually enabled now by God's Spirit to accomplish it. And, 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 and that is something that I think we need to, to focus in on in this generation. Now, this isn't new, and it's one of the strange things, I think, over the last couple of months that's just, I think, confused me, is the suggestion made by some that a theonomic view is something new. You know, I would say, Tell that to the Christians in the second century arguing against the Marcionites. Tell that to the Christians uh, around John Knox. Tell that to the Christians who landed on Plymouth Rock. Tell that to the governor in Massachusetts who was looking to the law of God as the basis of the system of justice for their community and their society. Tell that to the early Puritans that theonomy is new and strange. You see, Christians have, for 2,000 years, had a, a, a basic presupposition, and that's that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords now. And they had the basic understanding that the law of God is fundamentally good and that it's the standard. And particularly Reformed Christians, particularly Reformed Christians, have said we have the benefit of not just general revelation, but special revelation. And God has spoken in history, and that's a gift. So we're not to be in, in sort of like this strange place of darkness going, well, we don't really know where to go on this issue. We can say, no, no, he, he, God's spoken on this. What's justice in this, in this issue here? As Christians, we're supposed to say, well, God's spoken. 
This is what he said in his law. This is justice. This is righteous. This is holy. This is how society is supposed to operate. We have the benefit of special revelation, and it's, it's an amazing thing that we live now in, in a time that's, that we're actually, as Christians who believe in the fundamental goodness of God's law, who believe in its abiding validity today, we're having to argue with other believers about the abiding validity of the law of God in culture and society because we've gotten so far removed from a biblical view of the goodness of God's law that we're actually dealing with today, this, the, the opposition coming from within the, even within the professing church that would uh, oppose looking to the law of God as, uh, as what is actually truly just today. Jeff, what you're saying makes so much logical sense. It's, it's just optimistic, and, it, and it's filled with hope, and it's, it's the idea that Christ is— it starts with the, the, the presupposition that Christ is king, and he's reigning and will continue to reign, and it's in the Bible. And are, are we just crazy? That, that's, that's my question. Like, why, why is this so difficult for other people to understand? I'm sitting here listening to you, and it's like, amen, amen, amen. Like, why— why are people resisting the idea that Jesus is king? He's going to he's going to conquer all of his enemies and that we're going like he's going to win history. Why why is that so hard such a hard thing for people to comprehend? Because and this is this is I think true for all of us and we have to all confess to this. All of us have been impacted by traditions in our lives and um you know one of the things that Dr. White um who's a friend uh says often he says, you know, if you if you say you have no traditions, you're the one that's um, inundated with the most of them or struggling with the most of them because you never checked them out. And here's the problem is that we all have consistent biblical presuppositions that every Christian holds to. And I believe that if you draw those out, they lead inevitably and logically to postmillennialism and to obviously a theonomic view of ethics and everything else. Um, but we have colliding beliefs and traditions that end up sort of... Um, undoing those presuppositions in the end. And so I think that's that's the problem, is that we have traditions that are conflicting, because what Christian doesn't affirm anything I just said? The problem is, is, is in its outworking in society around you in your daily living. You're going to have, say, for example, the Christian who says, yes, Jesus is seated now. He's the king of kings today. And you go, excellent. And so that sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians 15. And that sounds a lot like where we're at now is the stage where Jesus puts all things in subjection to himself, every enemy under his feet, and then the last enemy being destroyed is death, and then the kingdom will be handed over to the Father as a done situation. That's 1 Corinthians 15. And then someone goes, oh, no, 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 no. He's coming to bring the kingdom later. And you say, but I thought your basic understanding was that he's king of kings now and seated now on his throne. And then that's when you start to see the system collapsing. The system starts to fall apart because of conflicting traditions and beliefs that sort of undo those basic biblical presuppositions. Yeah, real quick, I mean, like, wouldn't that be just be redundant if we were talking about Jesus being seated on the throne, like, later in the hereafter? Like, okay, all of his enemies have been destroyed, and then he's going to continue destroying his enemies? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It, 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 it's like, it's like you're, you're, you're putting everything that the Bible is, is pointing toward, you know, the the book of Luke, the kingdom of God, and and Matthew, kingdom of heaven, like all these things that are all throughout the Bible, especially in the Gospels, in the Psalms, 
like in I places like Isaiah and Daniel and things like that. And, and we're talking about like Jesus ta- reigning later on. That doesn't make any sense at all in the context because it, it, it's just a, a notion that would, would just be kind of like a duh moment. Like we don't even need to talk about that. But what does make sense is that the the paradise will be restored at some point in in history we will return to a state where where Christ is trampling the serpent's head and that we everything won't be necessarily perfect but the the paradise will be restored in in some sense um and and, and this wasn't just a throwaway creation that God made for you know just for misery for the for all of humanity yes the fundamental goodness of creation is not lost in the post-millennial view of the future. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, that's important. And, and this is, I think, something that, that every Christian can think through. The eschatological question really comes down to pretty simple questions. Um, number one, did Jesus bring his kingdom in the first century, I would say, on time and as planned? Because the Old Testament gives you the timing of the kingdom. Daniel chapter 2 tells you it's during the time of the fourth kingdom that God himself will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. You have all of the timing indicators. Jesus himself saying he brought the kingdom. The apostles heralding the kingdom. He has made us a kingdom and priests. And, and you know, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of God's son. And you have all the rest that the New Testament heralds that, that did in fact happen. Well, if you answer that question, did Jesus bring his kingdom? Is he seated now, reigning now? If you answer it in the affirmative, then you have to move to the next question. That is, what is the nature of the victory of that kingdom as it's spelled out in the Old and New Testaments? In other words, if you look at Isaiah 2, if you look at Isaiah 11, if you look at Daniel chapter 2, if you look at Daniel chapter 7, if you look at all the promises of the Messiah's kingdom, what does it say in terms of its, of its total victory? Is it defeated or is it conquering victorious? Because something needs to be said here. One of the, I think, effective arguments of Jewish people, people who are professing Jews today, um, against the Christian message is what they will go to, is they will go to the passages in the Old Testament that define the Messiah's kingdom as totally victorious over all the nations. They will go to those passages and they'll say something to a Christian like, well, this says that he, he is king over all the earth and he gets all the nations. So what's up? Like, you're saying it's later. You're saying it's coming later, but the Bible doesn't do that. It doesn't divide it up like that. It says the Messiah comes, he brings salvation, and he gets the nations. And so, like, there's this victory over the whole earth. And, and what happens, once again, is that Christians have to, have to come up with very creative arguments to try and somehow divide Christ's kingdom up in some future kingdom that's actually on earth, and, and it becomes a conflict. And you just have to ask and answer simple questions. Did Jesus bring the kingdom on time and as planned? And um, what's the nature of the victory of that kingdom? And if you answer those, I think biblically using the scriptures, you come to, an, I think, the obvious view of, of Christ's victory in history. And I mean, honestly, it just comes down to Christ is king, has all authority, is bringing his gospel to the ends of the earth, and he wins. That's That's it. And... And I think one of the things that has to be pointed out when it comes to the law of God question is some simple things. Um, Isaiah 2 promises that one of the eschatological blessings of the new covenant and the coming of the Messiah 
is Isaiah 2. The law goes forth from Zion. What goes forth? The Torah. The law goes forth from Zion. Uh, Jeremiah 31, the promise in a new covenant, is that God will now forgive people of their sins, remember them no more, and his law now is internalized within them. And no one will teach their neighbor anymore, saying, know the Lord, for they'll all know me. That's straight up post-mill. And when you look at Ezekiel 36, the promise of this uh, new covenant coming is regeneration. That God says he will cleanse them of all their idols, and he, by his spirit, will cause them to observe his statutes. Now, what statutes is Ezekiel referring to? What statutes? The known statutes. What, what law is Jeremiah referring to? The known law. When you look at the blessings of the new covenant, you see not only is forgiveness and salvation there and a washing away of sins as a gift of God's grace, but you see what every single Reformed Christian is supposed to be heralding constantly, and that's the transformed life of the believers. And if you have people now, a world that has made a new creation in Christ, and people are loving God and loving neighbor, you have a society that's looking to the law of God as what does it look like to love God and love neighbor in society? You go right to the law of God. It's a, it's a simple, I think, process to walk through. If the law of God, Jesus says, all of the law and the prophets are built upon love for God and love for neighbor. All of the law and the prophets are built upon love for God and love for neighbor. And if every Christian affirms that we are to love God and love neighbor, then that means that the obvious thing is to go to the law of God to say, what does it look like practically outwork to love God and love neighbor in society. You know, one of the things, Colin, when you and I um, a while back did a radio show together um, on a particular program, um, we talked about theonomy and the law of God. We talked about this issue. We talked about what it means to love God and love neighbor and how when you don't look to the law of God and his special revelation as to what is truly just, what is truly love for neighbor, then you actually end up not loving neighbor when you watch injustice happen and you don't actually go to the law of God for the answers. Yeah. You remember that? <laughs> I do remember that. That was a great show. It's still up, by the way. Yeah, I noticed that. It's on YouTube. And it's pretty clearly defined. You know, and this is, I want to say this, that I think it's important. That, that let's, let's talk about this for a second. I think it's important to say. Um, all, all of the giants of the faith that we would say, hey, this guy you know, was, was used by God, a giant of the faith. You look at a guy like Bonson, and the fundamental message coming out of his lips and in his writings is the authority of the scriptures, the Savior who is Jesus, salvation only as a gift of his grace through faith in Christ. That's always at the bottom of all this discussion. It never has not been. The first thing is a call to repentance and faith and salvation only in Christ. But, but, what happened to the next part of the, of the thing that we all are supposed to be talking about as Christians as to what happens when a person has been regenerated? Where do they look to? What do they, what do they look to as the basis, as the standard? Um, it's, the, it's the Word of God. Now, I, 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 I find it so strange that we are in a position today where Christians would actually um, repudiate the law of God and look into it as a standard for all of life when that is precisely what we do constantly when we herald things like sola scriptura. I mean, if we're Reformed Christians, if we're Reformed, and that's part of our confession, if we herald sola scriptura, if that's our message, then, then I would say, why is this a confusing thing to grab hold of? 
Sola Scriptura, the scriptures alone are the only infallible rule of faith and practice. And so if we have a question in society as to what is justice, isn't it our impulse as Reformed Christians to go to the Word of God to say, well, this is the standard. This is what God has said. This is what he's defined. I, 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 I find it confusing to me to, uh, today to see Christians um, who would repudiate even the law of God publicly. Yeah, it's a strange thing. And I think, yeah, Jeff, man, that's, there's so much there's so much there. Um, I think you definitely demonstrated to us and to our listeners that to have a biblical worldview, you must uh, not only affirm the basics that Jesus Christ is king and reigning, but you must also be consistent with that. And a big part of being consistent with that is to, is to understand that your life now and your society, wherever you're at, um, you're called to herald him as king now. And what does that look like? And theonomy gives us that standard, or not theonomy, but theonomy is the idea that God's law gives us, gives us that standard. How do we know life? Even defining humanity, sexuality, uh, defining justice, defining liberty that we owe in America, we love to talk about all the time as, a, as it slips through our fingers. God's law is the basis and the defining standard for all of these things. And I think it's, uh, man, a lot of good stuff there, brother. If I can just also mention Isaiah 2. Um, I, I, I've heard you, Jeff, I've heard you preach, brother, and you've really affected me and, and you've taught me a lot. And I'll I, I be honest, I don't think there's anyone that I've heard that knows how to preach uh, the dominion of Christ reigning now um, from the scriptures like you. Um, you've really encouraged me. And when I look at Isaiah 2, I see Isaiah 2, 5. Where, where uh, the vision of the Lord has just told the people, listen, there's going to be the greatest, the greatest mountain, the mountain of the Lord. The city's going to, the city on the hill. They're going to want to come to the, the the law of God. They're going to be drawn up to the mountain. And then he looks to his people and says, "You walk in the light of the Lord." Like there's a responsibility on the people of God that if we walk in the light. And what is the light of the Lord? According to the Old Testament, Proverbs 6 and other places, the light is Torah. It's God's law. It's his perfect standard, which brings a lot of power. Matthew 5, when Jesus says, you, because you are my people, you are the light of the world. So we as the people of God have this responsibility to love God's law and to demonstrate and display his law. That's what it means to be a herald of his gospel. And if we do that, the promise is, is that we will see in our society, in our families, in our municipalities, in our neighborhoods, we will see people drawn up to the mountain of God, um, to his light, because where else do we, is there this law? Who else has the word of life? Only you do, Lord. And, and that's what ultimately the elect want um, for themselves. I think it's important to, to, to get this across. Um, as people are investigating the scriptures, which is fundamentally where this comes from. It's all the scriptures. We're not just simply quoting church, the, you know, theologians and fathers are saying the scriptures, the scriptures, that's our standard. Um, number one, justification is a forensic declaration by God, a legal declaration that has to do with freedom from condemnation because of the work of Christ alone. And justification is through faith alone because of Christ alone. And if anybody tries to add any work of law to God's grace and to what Christ has done, that is anathema. It is worthy of eternal condemnation. So, so fundamentally underneath all of this 
is the gift of salvation and reconciliation with God. Now Christ has all authority, and he brings that authority and his salvation that's with it to the ends of the earth through the proclamation of the good news of forgiveness and salvation in him and his authority, and people come to him through faith, they are joined to him, and they are forgiven. Now that leads you inevitably to the next question, that's, okay, then what? Is that it? Are Are we actually saying today that are we going along with some of the charlatans and con artists that will, you know, say you just pray this magic prayer and then nothing ever happens? Is that really what we've adopted today in our culture and time? Or are we actually saying what the Bible says, and that's that when Christ saves somebody, they are brought into union with him. They're united to him in his death and resurrection, and they're made alive. And then, and then what happens after that has to be something we ask. Uh, what, what does the Bible say about what happens to a person after they've been joined to Christ? Well, read Romans. After the strong declaration of justification by, by grace through faith in Christ alone, apart from any work of law, Paul moves right on to the next thing, and that's union with Christ and, the, and being now brought into the Spirit and no longer in the flesh. And now what? Paul says it. We can now fulfill the righteous requirement of the law, which is to love God, love neighbor, love your neighbor. As you love yourself, love does no harm to its neighbor. Listen, that is the fundamental basis, Jesus says, of all the law and the prophets. Now, in the new covenant, we're able to do it. So what we're saying is reformed Christians today is really nothing that new. It's nothing that Christians haven't been saying for centuries. We just live in a time today where people repudiate the law of God. They despise the law of God. They they look at, you have believers who are Jesus-loving Christians. They love him, and they have been, so been, have been so impacted by the culture that when they look to the law of God and they see what he defines as just, they are repulsed by it. And that ought not to be so. I mean, what we're saying is that salvation inevitably leads to the life of God. The life of God in the soul of a sinner transforms them and actually causes them to be, and this is fundamentally important, causes them to be the kind of believer who can say the things that the psalmist says in Psalm 119. I mean, in in, in all, I think at the very basis of this is just very simple. Does Psalm 119 hold any relevance today? Can I pray that psalm? today? Can I sing that psalm today and mean it? Does it it carry the weight that the psalmist intended it to carry, that God intended it to carry? Is that a new covenant psalm? Can I say it and mean it? And here's what I would say to somebody. Whatever your view is now on the law of God, go to Psalm 119 and ask yourself the question, do I feel about God's law the way the psalmist does? in Psalm 119. Do I pant? Yes, yes. And is is this law relevant today? The law that the psalmist was referring to, is it relevant today? And it's an amazing thing, and I want to say this on record. Um, Jordan Hall loves Christ, loves the gospel, and I love him. And I pray for him, and I pray for his ministry. There are things, obviously, as a pastor that I look at in his life and the things, the way that he's behaved the last couple of months that I struggle with, but I love him and I bless him. But one of the things I think that demonstrates sort of an inconsistency is the opening of the debate with um, Joel McDermott 
at the God, Governments, and Culture Conference is that when Jordan opened up, he was just preaching 100-proof theonomy. When he was talking about the goodness of God's law and the fundamental justice of it and all the rest, saying we need to look to it today in our culture, I'm saying that's 100-proof that's theonomy. The, the struggle is, is when you begin to walk those statements back because of conflicting traditions. And what we want to promote to the world is this. Christ is king. He has all authority in heaven and on earth today. And that God's will is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that the world needs to know that there's salvation in no one else but Christ. And it's only a gift of his grace through faith in him. And that, and that God's law is the standard of all of life. Period. Amen. Wow. Well, I think that, uh, I, I don't think we can end that segment any better than that. So, everyone, uh, you know what? I heard actually Jeff Durbin say this in his latest episode. So, if you need to go get a drink or anything like that, go do that. And we'll be right back with that post mail. Even though we still on earth, uh -huh. in heavenly places we're seated. Woo. Ephesians 2, you should read it. Uh -huh. It's only because we're in Jesus. Yeah. Well, I don't think some believe it. So. And I don't think that they see it. They, they think the church is defeated. What? Well, why we call him King Jesus? Well, welcome back to that Post Mill podcast. It has truly been an honor and a blessing having uh, Pastor Jeff Durbin here in the studio with us. Or the Google Hangout or, or whatever we want to call it. I know he's in his studio. Um, we do have a couple questions. We've discussed the biblical worldview. We've discussed the importance of God's law and the reign of Christ and the victory of Christ now for having a truly biblical worldview, being consistent uh, in what we say and what we believe. So, uh, Pastor Durbin, if you're up for it, we do have a couple questions regarding how that comes to, how we put that to task, where the rubber meets the road. What does it look like to be post-mill theonomic gospel believing in this really crazy, topsy-turvy society that we live in now? Um, so without further ado, I guess uh, we have a lot of questions. I guess a big question now is the Baltimore issue. And when I think of Baltimore, I think of a city uh, that is dear to me, not only because of my time spent in the Northeast, but just we see this being played out time and time again. And I think it's a lot of our younger listeners might not remember or really think about L.A. back in the 90s. They might not realize that this is something that our uh, that our nation has been experiencing um, time and time again. Um, I don't think that it's a coincidence that we see um, these things happening over and over and over. Um, I don't claim to know the answers. I, I think that there's when we go black and white or Republican or Democrat, we can definitely lose focus on um, the color of the world and, and of the gospel and just all the different issues, how they work together. But being post-mill, theonomic, how can we address the idea and Baltimore being an example of shalom being desperately needed for the city? The cultural mandate, the idea of dominion is more than just, we, we know what dominion is. Dominion isn't this top going down and taking over the powers that be, but this cultivating of the gospel and culture, engaging and loving and serving and giving ourselves. Um, how does this theonomic post-mill worldview practically look when we have something like rioting and injustice going on in our city? Well, it's it's interesting because it's as simple as we would think it is at its beginning. It's, it's a gospel issue. It's an issue of the hearts of men that are fallen, 
people whose feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I mean, I think when I, when I look back at the last week or so of watching the news and seeing the clips popping up on social media of people destroying a city and uh, attacking people on the basis of skin color and all the rest, it's, it's like you're reading Romans chapter 3. And the issue in Baltimore is um, an issue that can only ultimately be solved through the proclamation of the gospel, repentance and faith in coming to trust in Christ as, as the bottom line. But when you call out to people as to what their specific sins are, you look at the issue in Baltimore and so much of it is racially charged. You're looking at, a, a, you're looking at the results of a culture that has abandoned God's law abandon God's word. And so when you look at racial tension, you're, you're looking at something that exists not because of the biblical worldview, but because of an antithesis of the biblical worldview. You're looking at people who are primarily raised in the public edu- school education system who are being taught that they are nothing more in this universe than cosmic accidents, that they're just stardust. And so, so you, you reap what you sow, and you look at racial tension. There's a lack of love for brother, and there's a lack of forgiveness. There's a, a holding on to a record of wrongs. Um, that's, that's fundamentally antithetical to the biblical worldview. And so what's the, what's the answer to Baltimore is the proclamation of repentance and faith, turning away from these sinful things, people who would destroy another's business and would steal from it. That's a gospel issue. That's a gospel issue. You're a thief. You need to repent of your sin. God will judge you for this. You need to come to Christ where there's forgiveness and salvation. Be reconciled to God. So fundamentally, that's, that's the issue. But watch this. This is really interesting. You're never going to get away from, as an image bearer of God, the issue of injustice or justice. You have people in Baltimore that are crying out despite not standing on the rock of God's word where there's an absolute standard of justice of what is right and what is wrong. They're crying out for justice in the streets. They're saying, this was not just. And I would say this, by what standard is that not just? And you have a whole city that is just in flames because they're enraged over what they think is an injustice. Now, I don't know all the details to the issue of what's going on in the investigation, but I can tell you this. I can tell you that Baltimore is struggling with an internal tension between conflicting worldviews and and, and, and a need for a solid answer as to what is true justice. And that does flow very well. I mean, I would think that the theonomist is the only Christian that has a direct, objective, consistent answer to the issue of injustice in Baltimore. Because we can actually say, well, here's the answer. You go to the law of God. How should you handle the issue of the, the pursuit of a criminal? Um, how, how are the police officers to be judged? Is it by some arbitrary standard? Is, is that it? Or do we look to something that is outside of us that is the standard of how society is to operate? It's from the very mouth of God where he says, this is actually just, and this is the role of civil government. You know, you only can have consistent answers to these questions if you actually go to the law of God. And so I would say that what's the first starting point? It's the proclamation of the gospel. It's calling people to be reconciled to God. I mean, people hate brother on the, for the, uh, on the basis of, of skin color because of the fall. I mean, racism is fundamentally um, 
antithetical to the gospel. I mean, that we all know the verse because it's one of the most popular Christian verses that every Christian should know. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free, Jew nor Greek. We're all one in Christ. Jesus abolishes um, any kind of racial distinction between people or classes or gender. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And so the gospel obliterates that distinction. But when you move forward into the discussion of Baltimore, I, again, I think only the theonomist can answer with a consistent answer. This is the answer to justice here. And the amazing thing is, is it's not an arbitrary standard. It's, a, it's an objective standard outside of ourselves. God says this is how society operates. God says this is the role of civil government. God says this is how you actually execute justice in this situation. Um, and we're stuck today. We're stuck today with a culture that has abandoned the law of God, which is what it was based on without question, uh, this culture p- particularly, and we're, we're stuck. We're stuck with people saying, well, how do we answer this? What do we do? And everyone's crying out for justice, justice, and I would say by what standard? And there isn't going to be any ultimate justice done until we look to what God says is actually just to do here in this situation. So watch this. So when you say, well, how does the post-millennial theonomic view work its way out in culture? I would say, well, we go into Baltimore recognizing that Christ is king over Baltimore, and he has authority there. And we recognize that his law matters there. And when we call the, the people who are looting and rioting to repentance, it's on the basis of an absolute standard. And we call out to the government in Baltimore and say, well, this is God's standard, and this is where you've fallen off the rails. You need to repent and go to God's standard. So the standards of justice are the same for the citizen— and for the policeman who is also a citizen. And so it's a consistent standard. And the call is really to repentance. We're saying this is the standard right here, God's word, his law, his voice. And you've gone off the rails. You need to repent and come back to God, come to Christ for salvation. And what will happen is this. If you read Isaiah 9, verses 6 through 7, and you look at that passage, you see that the promise is that God himself is coming as a son and as a child, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And it talks about the establishment of the throne of his justice there, and that the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. When Christ comes as king, there is an increase of his government and of his peace, and there is justice. And so as Christ's message of salvation goes into a city, it transforms it with shalom, peace. Why? Because as people are reconciled to God, there is now peace with God, and peace with God leads inevitably to peace among men. And because Christ's throne is established on justice, because he rules, he rules with justice. And we actually can say that as Christ's government and peace increases, you begin to see a society that actually points to his throne as a standard of justice. So I I think we can all agree that when we look at the situation in Baltimore, um, there are sinful actions on both sides of the problem. Like it's not just like you always hear people defending the citizens and you hear other people defending the police. Everybody's at fault because everybody in the situation has done something wicked and um that's I think that's part of the problem that we see in these discussions is people are unwilling to admit that whichever side they're defending has a problem. Agreed. Only if you look to God's word can you actually have an answer that's consistent.
and and only when you look to God's word um, and you use the law equally to both the citizens and the police. That's the only point in time when we get true justice, when when everybody will be able to be satisfied and say, okay, justice was done in this situation. You know, the the people who are looting and destroying property would get justice, and um, police, if they're you know being brutal right. and abusing their authority, would get yeah. justice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what we, that's what we're seeking. There's for. um a, a personal uh, account I. Some good friends of mine who live in Orlando were in town, so they came to Grace Church Sunday, and I got to spend the day with them a little bit. But um, my my friend's wife, she has uh, a cousin who pastors a church right in downtown Baltimore uh, called the Garden Church, actually. Uh, Pray for the Garden Church. But they, um, you know, just some things that she conveyed to me that he told her was it's just really, uh, really encouraging, you know, things like, listen, this is our home. This is where God has called us to be. We're not going anywhere. Um, you know, right behind any kind of rioting and any kind of violence, any kind of police, uh, he and, and, and the other elders were right there, um, to go to offer, uh, any kind of aid or water or cleanup. And they, and it's basically this, According to him, it's it's a daily grind right now for justice. It's a daily grind to uh, every day re- be renewed and go out into uh, a really chaotic city and to just be light. And I was just so thrown back by that because my 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 mind is up in you know the air with all these other things with political justice and and those things are great. We need that, but if you're really in the heart of it where you really have no control over what's going on, what do you do as a church? What do you do as believers? And the bottom, the brass tacks is, what does God's law say? Who is king? Who is in control? And I always, and I think of the story of, you know, Christ after his resurrection, he's spending time with his disciples and he tells Peter what he has in store for Peter. And then, and Peter is like, well, what about John? What about, what about him? And Jesus is like, what do you care about what I have for him? You follow me. Right. You do what I've called you to do. And I think that that's really what it comes down to in our cities. We have this weird idea that we can vote for someone in a federal election and we can see things change. No, things are not going to change. Things are going to change when the church wakes up. When the people of God realize their role in their neighborhoods, in their families, in their local, wherever they're at, and begin to renew the city and bring justice to the community um, through the gospel, you know, and I, yes. I, I just think that's so, it's so amazing that there really is no way to, what, do, what is social, what is true social justice, or as N.T. Wright says, restorative justice, uh, Timothy Keller, I know, also borrows that. What it is, is when it's the outpouring of the gospel in the culture. That's what it really is. When we understand what the gospel is, what Christ has really done for us, and what Christ wants to do for his world, the overflow of that, the action that comes from that, is this restoration of all things. So I I would want to say, to sort of buttress the point there, that one of the effects of a post-millennial view of the future and of Christ's reign as now and as victory within history is that I think you can you can see a consistency with what 
our message is as it's being understood by the culture and the early church. If you look in the book of Acts, the charge against the early Christians was that they're going against the decrees of Caesar, which I think was a false charge, um, and they're saying there's another king, one Jesus. And so, so the world around the early church in the book of Acts understood that their message was fundamentally that Christ was king. And they understood that that message, they saw that as a threat to Caesar. Uh, and, and in some sense, it is, not in the sense that they would have thought it is, in the sense of like military fighting and, you know, by force. That's not how Christ's authority advances in the world. But, but it, it, it is a threat to the kings of the earth. Because in Psalm 2, God says, long before Christ comes and is seated on his throne, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your inheritance, and to the kings be wise obey the son or you'll perish when his wrath is kindled. I mean, that's for real. And so what what we would say is an effect of a post-millennial view is that our message as Christians comes to our current culture, not just to the individuals in a lower class in society, but our message goes to the highest authority and says, you must repent and come to Christ. What you're doing is wicked. You need to turn from this and come obey the Son. You need to be reconciled to God. So the message for us is not compartmentalized in in uh, sort of like a lower class, like it's just, it's just for the individuals. No, it's like it's you up there, President Obama, you also must repent. You also must stop advocating the murder of babies. You also must stop destroying the family. God says, and you must obey or he'll judge you and your throne. And so, so I would say that, that one of the effects of a post-millennial view is in what you're talking about in terms of all of life. I mean, think about this. Gospel means good news. It's called the gospel of God's Son. It's called God's gospel. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, is out heralding the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. So this is like this whole full orb thing of reconciliation, peace with God, but it comes with understandings of like Christ's lordship. He is king. He is reigning. He has all authority. You must repent. I mean, the message that Paul preaches at the Areopagus is that God overlooked these times of ignorance in the past, but now he commands men everywhere to repent. And so so the... I think the thing you should see that's consistent is that what we would advocate for is not simply that salvation is this private little experience over here just, you know, for people in a lower class, but we would say all of Christ for all of life and every authority, all realms, all authority means what it says, all authority. And that means that when Christians come into a culture they're supposed to come in with the message of redemption and salvation and the proclamation of Christ's lordship, and that's supposed to go to every single area. So, as Christians, how do we address the issue of, say, the murder of children in our society? Well, if we don't approach it with the foundation of Christ's lordship and him being king, then we'll probably approach it the way we have in the last couple decades. Pro-life sort of over the top of us saying, you know, traditional values, traditional values, and, you know, this is going to hurt the mother, and it's going to give you, you know, bad experience in your future, and, you know, we just don't think it's the right thing to do, and, you know, or do we approach the issue of abortion in a culture saying God commands you not to murder? He commands you not to murder. Christ is king. He has all authority. You have no right to take these children's lives, and he commands you to repent, and we say that at the abortion clinic, and Christians in our nation should be saying that to their representatives. 
that you are under obligation to obey God. He says, you shall not murder, and that is what you must obey. You've got to turn from this wickedness, and you've got to stop murdering babies. And as Christians, we won't stand for it. Christ has authority. You have no right to these babies' lives. And that's how we should approach the issue. And so when it comes to areas of social justice, it comes down to calling the society to repent and to come to God's law as the standard. But of course, we're proclaiming salvation in Christ. But in the proclamation, this is what's amazing. You have people today, like say Ray Comfort, who is, is all about bringing the law of God to bear um, on people out um, at the beach. You know, uh, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything, irrespective of its value? Have you ever looked at lost in your heart? You know, and, and he's going to the law of God to show them their sin and to call them to repent and believe. Well, here's what we would say as postmillennialists and the- theonomists. Uh, that goes every direction. That, that, that message is not just for that individual person you meet at the pier. It's every single area, and it's a consistent thing, and that is how we're supposed to approach the culture around us. We're supposed to herald the Lordship of Christ, salvation in Him, and the fundamental goodness of His law. So one of the uh, one of the ways that I think Jeff, you have done the kingdom of God a service in how you is how you approach conversations like this. Um, I think that I think that God has just gifted you with humility and grace in speech that's just unparalleled. And could you can you help us? Can you help us with how you come to that? How, how do you how do you find yourself approaching conversations in a way that comes off that communicates the love that you have for other people even when um even when speaking with people that you disagree very strongly with that's a good question and uh i know that i definitely have plenty of failure in my life in this area but um you know honestly it's the same thing we've been talking about when i go to talk to somebody who's the rabid unbeliever on the street or um, if it's someone outside of an abortion clinic or if it's um, a Mormon I'm preaching the gospel to or if it's a brother in Christ to have a disagreement with, I think that all of us have to recognize that um, the starting truths of the proclamation of the gospel come down to our condition and recognizing that all of us come into this relationship with Christ with nothing but sin to offer. Uh, we're not good and we're not mighty and there's nothing in us that God saw as appealing in us in some sense of our own righteousness, and that's what caused him to desire us, but it was all of his grace. And so I recognize that if a, if there's a person who does not obey, to obey Christ or does not submit to his word, I, I recognize that the only reason that I do, in any respect, love God, obey God, is because of his grace in my life. And that's that's the truth. And I mean, honestly, if you think about the foundation, the foundation is is the truths that we proclaim in Calvinism. We are we are we have no ability to come to God on our own. It's all of His grace, and I recognize that that the only thing that's going to change someone's mind is not my argumentation. It's not my fancy theological footwork. It's not my ability to be winsome. It's it's the grace of God, and so I just believe that. God is mighty enough to transform their heart and mind, and though they may not be where I think God would want them to be theologically or what they're thinking, I, I know that it's only God that can do it. So I think that my, my role is always to just bring the truth 
and trust God with it. And I think this is important. I think that we can see in our own lives whether or not what we believe about God has truly taken anchor within us. We can see whether or not it has based on how we love others. So I'm, I'm just not impressed. I, I'm not impressed with a person who knows a lot about God, but just sucks at life. I'm not impressed with a person who has a podcast or very wonderful sermons and writes, you know, thick, delicious books on theology, but they can't do the most basic thing, which is love their brother. Um, I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed with the ministry a person has who knows a lot about God, but doesn't look like they know him. Um, And I think that I'm convicted of that in my own life. I'm challenged by that in my own life, that what God wants for me is to for me to love my neighbor as I love myself. And if I can't get that right, then all the other things that I think I know about God are ultimately irrelevant. Because if I can't love my neighbor as I love myself, I'm not doing the very thing Christ promises to do in my life and that he commands me to do in my life. And so what I want to say is theology matters. It's fundamentally important. But that theology has to actually get some wheels on it and start rolling its way out in my life. And, um, and so I'm, I'm convicted by it. I'm convicted and challenged because I know my own failures. I know the ways that I screw up on a daily basis. And so when I approach a person, I feel a deep obligation to love this person the way that God calls me to, um, because that's fundamentally the most important thing. God's not going to be, at the last day, really impressed with me because I knew so much about him if I didn't love my neighbor. And um, I think that that's my primary responsibility. And to leave, leave, leave salvation and the convincing in the hands of the Holy Spirit, which is what all of us black coffee-drinking Calvinists are supposed to believe. Honestly, Jeff, that's been one of the things that, um, that I've been trying to, uh, t- trying to change in my own life and my interactions on, uh, on Facebook and in person is just to try, uh, try to leave the other person with no such excuse uh, when it comes to my character and my behavior, I don't. I don't even want to give them the opportunity, and um, I still struggle with that, and it's still something that I'm growing with. But um, but you've challenged me just uh, watching you and listening to you and the way that you engage with people, and I think that that's really what we need to do um, if we're gonna, especially with unbelievers, um, but even more so with believers, because when we're talking to brothers and sisters who disagree with us on, on uh, for example, theonomy, it's, it's just a topic that tends to come with a firestorm from both sides. And if we approach discussions in a way that doesn't give them the opportunity to say that we were jerks, then, uh, then that will uh, allow the truth to stand on its own rather than allow ourselves to be a stumbling block to the truth. Cool. Well, uh, stay tuned, guys. We'll be just right back on Dat Post Mail to hook you guys up with some resources from Jeff. Psalm 2 and 12. Uh-huh. Kiss the son of perish. If you're waiting for him to come and reign and you're in error. On the throne of David, the Savior's already there. This is something that some in the church are not aware of. Welcome back to Dat Post Mail. Uh, we are here with Jeff Durbin, and he is going to hook us up with major resources. Jeff, what, how, can we, how can we connect with you and hear more about what you have to say on these issues and that sort of thing? The, I think one of the hubs, which is going to be, uh, which is being changed right now and amped up and all kinds of new things added, 
is apologiaradio.com, A-P-O-L-O-G-I-A, radio.com. That's where you can go to get all our past episodes and things like that, and there's a ton of them there. You can also get our app, Apologia Church, on Google Play or the iTunes Store, and there's tons of content there, past sermons, uh, other radio shows I've been on, conferences, actual live discussions with an atheist or a Mormon or an agnostic. They're all up there as well. All the Apologia Radio episodes are there. My old radio show, Redemption Radio, is there. You can go to our YouTube channel and subscribe to it. It's Apologia Church on YouTube, and you can um, get all the content we give there. If I do a conference or a teaching somewhere, we usually upload it there, and we're constantly adding new stuff. Um, And so you can check everything out there. But I would say this. Stay tuned in the next couple of weeks to Apologia Radio and look for all the new stuff we're going to make available. So you'll be able to actually subscribe to the radio show itself and um, get all kinds of additional content um, from the radio program. And so just stay tuned for that. Go to ApologiaRadio.com to do so. Um, And uh, I, I constantly am putting out things on Apologia Radio on Facebook and on my own personal page uh, by way of content, sermons, uh, books I recommend, and things like that. That's awesome. And uh, specifically on these areas that we talked about today, about like the foundation of a Christian worldview and how that relates to eschatology, our view of the law. Are there any Are there any other resources that you could point people to other than you got uh, your stuff? Yes. Apologia. Yes, I would say starting point for everybody would would be um, I would get Bonson's works. Um, I would get um, Always Ready uh, by Greg Bonson and Presuppositional Apologetics by Greg Bonson. I would pick up those two works. Those are fundamentally important to get when it comes to the area of um, apologetics and how we know what we know. God's Word is the standard of all of life, um, and so I would, I would pick those up. I would read those right away. I would get um, He Shall Have Dominion by Kenneth Gentry. Uh, that's a fantastic work that goes over all the eschatological viewpoints. It treats them very fairly, and it does an overview of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation on the area of eschatology, just to show what does the Bible say from beginning to end about Christ's reign, His kingdom. Uh, so I would pick that up. I think Victory in Jesus by Bonson is a fantastic book you can get. Um, David Shilton's book, Paradise Restored, is also very good. Um, if you wanted to start the discussion on the law of God, I think you can start easy by going to get uh, By This Standard by Greg Bonson. Um, and uh, you can get also, if you wanted to get deeply into the subject, to a very detailed, expositional, and exegetical look at the law of God throughout the Bible, get Theonomy and Christian Ethics by Greg Bonson. I think that's a good starting point. Um, and, uh, I would do that. Sweet. Jeff, is there anything else you want to, want to say before we go? Any more jokes you want to crack? You know, I would say this, you, you know, you know, you know, what would be epic is if we could get the crew from Dat Post Mill to come out here to do something in the studio at Apologia Radio. That would be pretty sweet. That would be awesome. You basically just offered a three-year-old Disney World is what you just said. That would be... Dat post mill. <laughs> that would be dat post mill. Hashtag. We would have to hashtag dat post mill like a million times just to make up for it if that happened. Yes. <laughs> well, thank uh, thank you to you and thanks to Marcus as well for for staying up late to help us out with technical stuff and um, uh, thanks to the listeners for tuning in. You can find us at uh, datpostmill.com. Remember one L. 
Keep hashtagging that post mill. We'll see you guys next week. And the meat Jesus said that the earth they shall inherit. Some think it's getting worse, but how Jesus removed the curse. He has dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Now he's reigning from heaven. May all the kings bow down before him and all nations serve him. Psalm 72 11. This is an anthem. This song is not an apologetic. This is a song that lets you know Christ is king because I read it. If you want to debate, Name a time and place and we'll get it The progression of the kingdom of God Is where my head is A post-millennial age is where we're headed Christ is conquering the nations Yeah, I said it Jesus the Messiah brought The expected kingdom on time And as planned He is seated and reigning now His kingdom will grow in history Through the preaching of the gospel And the power of the Holy Spirit The world will experience the transformational blessings The peace with God brings Jesus will return for the resurrection of the just and the unjust after, after all his enemies are put under his feet in victory. The last enemy is death.